Take our Bibles and we'll turn to Revelation chapter 17. We're going to read the whole chapter. You'll see that we're on the home run, that uh, our journey through Revelation is coming rapidly to a conclusion. Um, And the glory is just ahead of us. Revelation chapter 17. Let's hear the word of God. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemies, and it had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. When I saw her, I marveled greatly. But the angel said to me, Why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with the seven heads and the ten horns that carries her. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. And the dwellers on earth whose names have been not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world, will marvel to see the beast, because it was and is not and is to come. This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. There are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen. One is, the other has not yet come, and when he does come, he must remain only a little while. As for the beast that was and is not, it is an eighth, but it belongs to the seven, and it goes to destruction. And the ten horns that you saw are ten kings who have not yet received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour together with the beast. These are of one mind, and they hand over their power and authority to the beast. They will make war on the Lamb, and the Lamb will conquer them, for He is the Lord of lords and King of kings. And those with Him are called, are the called, chosen, and faithful. And the angel said to me, The waters that you saw where, where the prostitute is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. And the ten horns that you saw, they are the beast. Then the beast will hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked, and devour her flesh, and burn her up with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to carry out His purpose by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman that you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Not everything is 
as it appears. I was trying to think of a culturally connecting illustration, and I don't think this is it, but I'm going to use it anyway. If you can imagine a rock concert, I know you're 10th Presbyterian people, you only go to classical concerts, but imagine a rock concert. Rock concerts are high-energy events, and uh, to be part of one, it's a, it's a great experience. The, the volume is, is great. The technology is superb. And where the performance is good, then the whole audience gets cranked up and wills it never to end. But everything is not as it appears. I was once... Well, actually, I, I ingratiated myself in to being one of a number of people who sang as backup to a particular, I think you could call him a rock artist. And uh, he was uh, coming to Glasgow. Actually, I did this three times. He came three times over three years and uh, was singing backup behind him. It was very well received by the crowds that poured in. The place was packed with women. Uh, and at the end of the concert, they were obviously enjoyed every part of it. And uh, we in the back row behind them just uh, watched this display. But from the back scenes, just being behind and, and then gathering together before the performance, everything seemed kind of shabby and false and even though he looked great when he was on the stage with all the lights on him and the makeup and everything else, when you saw him in person, it was disappointing, really. <laughs> the, whole, the whole event was disappointing when you saw behind the scenes. Now, there's a sense in which that's the picture that the Apostle John is given as he presents this image to us that we're looking at this morning, uh, the great prostitutes seated on many waters with whom the kings of the earth have uh, had sexual immorality. You could argue that the Bible is a tale of two cities, and those two cities are associated with two women. In the Old Testament, the people of God are symbolically depicted as feminine. Uh, they are so when they're being described as Zion or Jerusalem, the heavenly city of God, or as Eve was, or as the daughters of Zion were, and so on. In Revelation chapter 12, we're introduced to that feminine image for the people of God as the dragon who is Satan uh, as the head of an anti-trinity of the devil, the antichrist, and the false prophet, set out to wage war against this woman, this woman who's clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of 12 stars on her head. This is the woman that gives birth to the Messiah. This is the woman who gives birth to you and me. We are her offspring. Her offspring are those who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. That's you and I if we're believers. 
In other words, from Eve through Mary, uh, through the, the, the wife of Jehovah in the Old Testament, the bride of Christ in the New Testament, to the holy city, the New Jerusalem that comes down out of heaven from God, addressed as a bride adorned for her wedding. The imagery is consistent. The church, the body of God's people, is described in feminine terms as uh, the bride of God. And so we come to this picture that we have here now in Revelation 17. Here we're introduced to another woman, the great prostitute who sits by the many waters. One picture is that of a bride adorned for her husband. This picture is the picture of a prostitute that sits by many waters. And the kings of the earth have committed adultery with her, it says. Now, we know what the bride is. The bride is the church. Who is the prostitute? And the answer of the Scripture is that this woman represents the world economic system. She represents fallen human culture. She represents what we call in biblical terms the world, as Jesus referred to it, and as you find it referred to repeatedly by the apostles following, uh, following their lead. And here she is described as Babylon. The world system is called Babylon because you remember the people of God in the Old Testament when Babylon came to Jerusalem, Jerusalem was leveled, temple was leveled, the people were taken into exile in Babylon. You hear the name Babylon and you immediately think of the church in exile here, not in heaven, in the new Jerusalem, but here on earth as we, as we make our pilgrimage here on earth in exile. Peter calls us elect exiles of the dispersion in his first letter, chapter 1 and verse 1. So the true church then finds itself in Babylon, which is the world system in which we live. Throughout uh, the book of Revelation, the true church reflects her Lord in exercising on his behalf and for his glory her threefold office. Ben Glad puts it like this. The true church images God on earth as kings. The church imitates Christ by spiritually ruling over the world by becoming and by becoming physically overcome by it. Now, get that idea. Jesus, how does Jesus reign when he's here on earth? He reigns from the cross. How does the church demonstrate its spiritual superiority over the world? It does so under the cross. Take up your cross and follow me. The way the church reigns is not by having power over empires, not having its hands on the levers of power within the United States of America or anywhere else. The church exercises, demonstrates its reign over sin by being persecuted by the world as Jesus was. The church also acts as priests. It's depicted in Revelation as a lampstand. 
that enjoys God's glory and radiates that glory to a hostile world. And in Revelation, the church acts as a prophet. That is, the church bears witness to the world of God's truth, whatever the cost, however it's received. That's what the church does. It rains from a cross like Jesus. It's a light to the world like Jesus was. And it's a prophetic word to the world of witness, just as Jesus bore witness. So the church is the spouse of God and the bride of Christ. And the church is at grave risk. We read that when we read chapters 2 and 3, that this letter, this letter of Revelation, is a letter to all of the churches all over the world, all through time. And the main clarion call of the book to the church is don't compromise. Don't be seduced by the world system. Whenever you see this language, it's unfortunately translated actually in the ESV here, sexual immorality. Whenever you see this kind of language, it's the same language that you find used in the Old Testament by the prophets when they're talking to Israel and they're saying to Israel, don't get seduced into spiritual infidelity by the pagan nations round about you. Don't be seduced into thinking you can worship God and worship the idols of our time. It's always a warning to the church against idolatry of one form or another. And if Jerusalem then is a figure of the heavenly city of God, then Babylon is a figure of the earthly city of man. As humans... We spend our time, don't we, planting, building, trading, protecting ourselves against the elements and against outside threats. We even may fashion works of beauty, works of art. Cities, cities themselves are an act of making. They are making culture. They are making things. They are making security or whatever it might be. This whole idea of the city finds its origins in the myths of time in the early chapters of Genesis at a place called Babel. Babel means the gift or the gate of the gods. Babel was built as an architectural wonder of the world, a skyscraper, if you will, a desperate attempt to ensure safety and immortality in face of death. Here's what the people of that day said. Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let's make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the earth. The first Babel was a great social project. It was uh, carried out by the descendants of Cain. Cain is the brother, you remember, who killed his brother Abel. And the violence of Cain was reproduced in the city that Cain helped to build, Babel. That's why it was eventually scattered, because 
Babel made Cain's violence greater even than Cain was able to perform. Now, every city, every community, every society, every culture conceived and built without reference to God has and will follow the trajectory of Babel. People of Babel had turned away from God. They turned to build and create something for themselves. The secular city highlights both humanity's capacity to do great things, to have great ambitions, to be able to form communities, to advance culture, to create technologies, to assure safety and security, to seek permanence and fame. But those cities that man builds also highlight the marginalization of God in favor of self-reliance, material power, sensual pleasure, and human arrogance. Just like Adam aspired to be like God, the people of Babel thought they could outsmart God. And the people of the cities of our world, the culture in which we live, the world system, seek to dismiss God. Now this then, Babel, this cultural, commercial entity in which you and I live our everyday lives in the world of every day, that's where we're living. We live in Babel, in Babylon. So in contrast to the church who is the bride, this great prostitute, Babel, has... uh, has done, a, has done a great thing. Let me, let me read to you the, the passage we've just read from the King James, which, is, which grasps it more clearly than, than the ESV at this point. The ESV just sounds like somebody had a dictionary. The KGV communicates the power and nuance of the prose. So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sit on a scarlet-colored beast full of the names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. And the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet color, decked with gold and precious stones and pearls, having a golden cup in her hand full of abominations and the filthiness of her fornication. And upon her forehead was a name written, Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. And I saw the woman drunken with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs. This is the first time that John speaks about being transported by the Holy Spirit to another place to be shown a vision. And here he's taken to the wilderness. Now, the wilderness appears earlier in the book, in chapter 12. The wilderness is where the woman who gives birth to the Messiah, the people of God, were taken for safety when the dragon, Satan, seeks to devour the child. John is taken to the wilderness to protect him from what he's going to see in this vision, to protect him from the very sight of Babylon. And we'll see that he was uh, vulnerable to the allures of Babylon. Mystery Babylon sits, we're told, astride the major communication waterways of the world. She has her hands on all the means of communication, all the means of movement of goods and services, movement of ideas and thoughts. She's in a place of sovereignty. 
She is great and powerful, and she's made great and powerful because all the states in the world, the countries of the world, the people groups of the world, give her that status because they, they prosper from her commerce and her, her knowledge base and so on. And she's called a prostitute because of her seductive power, which is always at work as she tries to draw Jesus' people away from Christ. That's one of the major themes of Revelation. In other words, when you read chapters 17 and 18, it's not so much a tirade against modern civilization with all its commercial enterprises and the power of the state. It is a challenge for Christians. It's a reminder to Christians who have been given the light of the world. The challenge is this. If you have the light of the world, why would you be sucked into thinking or acting as if human civilization, human society, the culture, offered you something greater than the light of the world? Why would you be brainwashed into thinking that what the culture has to offer you comes anywhere near what you have as God's people? John's great concern was about the church turning to the world. We read that in 1 John chapter 2. Here's what he says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. For all that is in the world, all that is in the world, get this series of three things that cover everything you're confronted with day and daily. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passes away in the lust of it. He, she who does the will of God abides forever. So throughout this book, the Holy Spirit is set on bringing us Christian people to a true knowledge and a true evaluation of what is temporal and evil and doomed to destruction in contrast to what is eternal and righteous and destined for glory. The seductive power of Babylon's wealth and influence, the security and prosperity she promises, is always a huge temptation. She sits among the nations. They all have a piece of her. Behind her, beneath her, sits the beast, the Antichrist, Satan. He will use her as long as she is useful. The public see her painted outline and are drawn in before they realize there's a beast there. She represents both desire and death. John says, and I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints. That's not so much that she's killed them as she sucked them in and they have lost their faith. In her hand is a cup of obscenities, the filth of her fornication, horrible language to describe horrible idolatries, the demonic behind 
the gods of this age, the, the powers of this age. You, you may ask the question, in, in the pagan world where there were actual gods that people worship, were those gods alive? Did those gods have any power over them? The answer of the Apostle Paul is, oh yes, they did. Why? Because demons were involved. Demons were involved. And you can be sure that the things that attract people, money, wealth, power, and rock and roll, whatever it is, that, that attracts people today, there are demonic forces that are always pulling us in their direction. Yes, this, this woman that is described here is no Barbie. She's no fairy queen either, though she has cast her spell on the world. Rather, she is a wicked witch in disguise, as old as sorcery and as old as hell. In verses 7 to 18, the mystery of Babylon is unpacked. The Bride of Christ, chapter 12, is described as a great sign. Here, the whore of Babylon is a great mystery. And in the description of the mystery, which begins in verse 7, the description begins with the beast on which, which she's riding. And that beast has been introduced earlier in chapter 13. It's the Antichrist, the monster. And the Antichrist is a travesty of Christ. Christ the Lamb bore the marks of slaughter. The Antichrist, the monster, has deadly marks of slaughter on him. The Lamb was dead and is alive forevermore. The monster received a apparent sword wound and apparently came back to life. Chapter 17 is similar. In chapter 1, verse 4 of Revelation, we were given the divine title, God is He who is and was and is to come. Here we're told about the beast that carries the whore, that he was and is and is to ascend from the bottomless pit and go to perdition. The one thing we can say about Antichrist is that the permanent attribute of Antichrist as a monster in its various iterations throughout history, as well as in the final form of Antichrist, is that it, the spirit of Antichrist, he, the Antichrist himself, is constantly moving towards perdition, towards the abyss, his final destiny. Now, John, in his response to the vision of the woman, we're told, marveled. And so we too might well marvel at the influence and the achievements and the growth and the developments of human society, the city of man, the wealth and opulence, the strength and its military muscle, its technologies and entertainment. All of these are designed to impress us and to draw us in to the orbit of its control. But Scripture asks us to look closer. Don't look at her, but look closer. Look at her and you'll be bedazzled. Look at her blasphemous power that carries her, the spirit of Antichrist. Below the surface of civilization, there is Antichrist. 
below the surface of our culture. That is, the things you watch, the things you buy, the things you wear, the things you eat, the things you hear discussed, the things you learn at school. Behind the culture, there is Antichrist. That's what the Bible teaches. I will tell you the mystery, says the guide to John. And uh, one of the early commentators, the third century commentator Hippolytus wrote, tell me, blessed John, apostle and disciple of the Lord, what did you see and hear concerning Babylon? In other words, once you've read this, you're no further forward. That's why I'm not even going to try. Uh, There's no doubt about it that there's a reference here to the city of seven hills. That might be Rome, of course, city with seven hills. And Rome is, if you like, an iteration of Babylon, Roman society, civilization. But it's only one. And so you find a number of leaders here who will emerge and then they'll disappear. And then someone will come up in the future, future time to John. And they'll emerge. And one after another, this process of Babylonization is going on all the time, everywhere, all over the world, until Jesus comes. And Babylonianization is to be understood in relation always to the beast, a falsification of the divine image, while the Lamb of God is the only true imprint of the divine image, the express image of His person. Look what the deception looks like. What is, it, what is it to be deceived by the whore of Babylon? Look at John's reaction in verse 6. I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I marveled greatly. You think to yourself, You saw the blood of the martyrs of Jesus and you marveled greatly. Because John's looking at the outside. You look at at the cultures of the world. You look at the civilizations of the world. You look and you see great things. You see impressive buildings and you see great technologies, great human achievements and literature and so on. And, And you're you're kind of, you don't want to condemn it. It's, it's great. That's the, that's the countries we live in and the, and the cities we live in and the cultures we live in. They're great. And all these other things are going on behind the scenes or, or you know, Christians are being oppressed. They're losing their jobs. They're being discriminated against. And we, we know that's going on, but somehow or other, we don't put our attention there. We put our attention on this great Babylon in which we live. We marvel at Babylon. That's always a temptation. That's what deception looks like. And of course, Babylon can do enough to make itself look a little bit like the bride city, the city of God. It can use Christian language and terminology. Do you know it's quite possible to say these words? God bless America. To say those words reverently, authentically, 
and prayerfully is a great thing. But you can say those same three words manipulatively. You can say those same three words. Somebody can say those same three words that will keep you on board even though you know perhaps that these people are not good people and their plans and their schemes are not good plans and good schemes. You see how easily we're deceived. That's the picture that's painted. Maybe not a good uh, illustration of it, but that's the picture that's being painted here in chapter 17. That Babylon can look a bit like the bride of Christ. Sound a little bit like the bride of Christ. In the end, it's the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life written before the foundation of the world, who will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. That last description seems to mimic, mimic God, but there's a fault line in there. The words is not are used earlier in chapter 13 of death and defeat. Even though you can't see it yet, the seeds of The world culture's defeat and death are there. They're in there. Why? Because Jesus said, the ruler of this world is coming. He has no power over me. Be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Babylon equals the world then. Human society without God, the very antithesis of new Jerusalem, God's society the church. Well, the world as an anti-God, anti-Christ system is borne up by the institution of human government. Human government was created by God. The devil never created anything. But what the devil does is he takes something and he perverts that thing and he uses it for his own purposes. God gives us law and order. The devil takes law and order and gives us bad law and tyrannical order. He puts blasphemies into the mouth of the state and into the mouths of our entertainers and into the mouths of the people we, we meet. Behind the scenes, in their personal conversations, the people who will say, God bless America, are cursing God in oaths and swearing. The blasphemies. Our society, the stuff we watch on, on television that is entertaining, smuggles in those blasphemies. We almost edit them out. We mentally edit them out. We're like John here, marveling at Babylon. Oh, my dear friends, we're up against a system that one day is going to be destroyed by itself. That's how John describes it here. As you go on through the passage, you'll find that the waters you saw where the prostitute is seated are the peoples and the multitudes of the nations and the languages. And in the end, they will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her with fire. 
In the end, there will be an implosion. Babylon will end, as it were, by its own success. The people who've been served by her, who've been fired up by her, who have been become famous through her, who've gained wealth through her, who've succeeded thanks to her, will be the ones who in the end will bring her down. The world system will be brought down by the very people who are profiting from it at the moment. And in doing so, they will be fulfilling God's purpose. That's how he puts it. Look at the end of the chapter here. For God has put it into their hearts to do what they want, that is to ultimately destroy the the system in which we live, to carry out his purpose by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And Babylon is destroyed. When the worldwide web of wickedness begins to unravel, the harlot will be the first casualty. Well, here you are, you and I are living in Babylon. John, in his little epistle, you should read First John, it'll take you about five minutes. In his little epistle, he talks about it. Here, the whole world is lying in the hands of a prostitute. That's the language he uses. The whole world is lying in the arms of a prostitute, being sucked in, having the life sucked out of them by the insidious and invidious propaganda of a world system that is against God. That's where we live our lives. And in the midst of all of this, God's people are preserved. And do you see how God's people are preserved? The Lord Jesus is the Lamb. He is the Lord of lords and the King of kings. And those with him are called the called and the chosen and the faithful. He's the Lord of lords and King of kings. That comes from Deuteronomy 10. It's used in Psalm 136, for the Lord your God is a God of gods and a Lord of lords. Give thanks to the Lord of lords for his steadfast love endures forever. Jesus is the ruler of the kings of the earth. He will ultimately defeat all these powers. And the saints who share the Lamb's victory are known by these three notes called chosen faithful. In God's eternity, the choosing comes first, of course. But it's the calling, that is, when God calls you by His grace, calls you out of the world to Himself. It's at that point when you're called by God and have given the gift of faith and you believe in Jesus, that's when you learn that you were chosen before you were called. And the mark of those who have been chosen and called is that they are faithful to Jesus. Faithful. Faithfulness is a habit. A habit conceived by the Holy Ghost and wrought in your heart and life. 
and worked out in daily obedience to King Jesus. May we be habitually faithful. Let's pray. We pray, Lord, that you would in your good grace um, alert us as your church to the ways of the world that deceive and seduce and take away our character slowly by slowly, bit by bit, piece by piece, over time. May we, Lord, find our safety when we are together here as God's people. May this be our wilderness, as it were, a place of safety. May these Lord's days when we're together be such that we strengthen one another in Christ to the praise of your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.